Chapter Three of the Mohawk Valley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Mohawk Valley: Its Legends and Its History by W. Max Reed. Chapter Three: Journal of Arendt Van Curler. Connected with the early history of the colony or province of New York the names of three men stand out bold and clear for their honesty energy and kindly treatment of the iroquois indians namely arent van curler from sixteen thirty four to the time of his death by the overturning of a boat during a storm on lake champlain in sixteen sixty seven and who was held in such high esteem by the mohawks that they used his name when addressing the governors of new york and called them brother corlear a fitting tribute to him whom they called good friend peter schuyler and sir william johnson were the two other men referred to peter schuyler seems to have gained the good will of the indians to the extent that they called him kedar which was as near as they could pronounce the word peter as the labials p b m are not to be found in their language he was the first mayor of albany and afterward acting governor of new york for a short period like van curler he had unbounded influence over the indians by whom he was greatly admired sir william johnson of our own section of the mohawk valley seems to have succeeded van curler and schuyler in the affections of the mohawks and from 1738 until the time of his death at Johnstown, in 1774, used his power to the benefit of the colonists of the Mohawk Valley, and to the defeat of the Canadian, French, and Indians. But at this time it is of Van Curler that we would speak. Professor Pearson says, The acknowledged leader of the little colony at Schenectady, in 1662, was Arendt Van Curler, he came over in 1630 as superintendent of the colony Rensselaerwick, and continued in office until 1646, besides acting as colonial secretary. In 1643 he married Antonia Slagboom, widow of Jonas Bronk, and soon after settled in the flats above Fort Orange, Albany. Here he remained until the spring of 1662, when he took up his residence at Schenectady, where he remained directing and furthering the interests of the settlers until his unfortunate death. While yet living in Albany, in 1642, he heard that a Jesuit priest named Isaac Jogues was being shamefully treated by the Mohawks and threatened with death, and on a mission of mercy he penetrated the Mohawk country to the first castle and succeeded in saving the life of father jogues for the time being but could not procure the release of the prisoner father jogues afterward escaped and returned to france where he remained until sixteen forty three when he returned to canada and in sixteen forty six to the mohawk country to meet a shameful death by the hands of the indians at osseruinon october eighteenth sixteen forty six it was after Van Curler returned from his mission of mercy in 1642 that he wrote to Killian Van Rensselaer, the patroon, in Amsterdam, Holland, that a half-day's journey from the colony on the Mohawk River 
there lies the most beautiful land that the eye of man ever beheld it was on this land that in sixteen sixty two he settled the colony of schenectady it has been thought that his journey of sixteen forty two was his first advent into the mohawks country but recent events have brought to light a diary of a journal he made through this locality as early as sixteen thirty four and it antedates all other records of the mohawk valley between schenectady and oneida in the independent of october third eighteen ninety five we find the following courlier and his journey of sixteen thirty four a great discovery in new york history the oldest record of the dutch period a notable visit to the mohawk indians by general james grant wilson the original journal of an expedition to the country of mohawks and senecans this should read oneidas made in sixteen thirty four and thirty five by arent van curler or corlear according to the pronunciation of the name in english is now before the writer it consists of thirty-two well-preserved pages of foolscap which have lain perdue in a dutch garret for two hundred and sixty years it is of great historical value antedating as it does any existing document relating to the history of new netherland and coming from the pen of one of the leading actors in the early annals of the colony the miles spoken of in this journal are dutch miles and were equal to about three english miles this diary records that van curler with two other white men and five macas indians as guides left fort orange december eleventh sixteen thirty four traveling mostly northwest about eight miles and arrived at half past twelve in the evening at a hunter's little cabin where we slept for the night near the stream that runs into their mohawks land and of the name of viog the land is most full of oak trees and the flat land is abundant the stream runs into their land near their mohawks castle but cannot be navigated upstream on account of the heavy current december twelfth at three o'clock before daylight we proceeded again and the savages that went with us would have left us there secretly if i had not perceived that their dogs had eaten our bread and cheese so we had to be contented with dry bread on which to travel and after going for an hour we came to the branch mohawk river that runs into our river and past the maca villages where the ice drifted very fast geronimus crossed first with one savage in a canoe made of the bark of trees because there was only room for two after that william and i went over and it was so dark that we could not see each other if we did not come close together. It was not without danger. When all of us had crossed, we went another mile and a half and came to a hunter's cabin, which we entered to eat some venison, and hastened further, and after another half mile we saw some Indians approaching, and as soon as they saw us they ran off and threw their sacks and bags away, and fled down a valley behind the underwood so that we could not see them we looked at their goods and bags but took only a piece of bread it was baked with beans and we ate it 
We went further, and mostly along the aforesaid kill, Mohawk River, that ran swiftly. In this kill there are a good many islands, and on the sides upward of five hundred or six hundred morgans of flatland. Yes, I think even more. And after we had been marching about eleven miles, we arrived at one o'clock in the evening, half a mile from the first castle at a little house. We found only Indian women inside. We should have gone further, but I could hardly move my feet because of the rough road, so we slept there. It was very cold with northerly wind. December 13th. In the morning we went together to the castle over the ice that during the night had frozen on the keel, and after going half a mile we arrived in their first castle, which is built on a high mountain, hill. There stood but thirty-six houses, in rows like streets, so that we could pass nicely. The houses are made and covered with bark of trees, and mostly are flat at the top. Some are one hundred, ninety, or eighty paces long, and twenty-two and twenty-three feet high. There were some inside doors of hewn boards, furnished with iron hinges. In some houses we saw different kinds of iron chains, harrow irons, iron hoops, nails, all probably stolen somewhere. Most of the people were out hunting deer and bear. The houses were full of corn that they lay in store, and we saw maize. Yes, in some of the houses, more than three hundred bushels. They make barrels and canoes of the bark of trees, and sow with bark as well. We had a good many pumpkins cooked and baked that they called Anansira. None of the chiefs were at home, but the principal chief is named Adriokten. He lived a quarter of a mile from the fort in a small house, because a good many savages in this castle died of smallpox. I sent him a message to come and see us, which he promptly did. He came and bid me welcome, and said that he wanted us very much to come with him. We should have done so, but when already on the way, another chief called us, and so we went to the castle again. This one had a big fire lighted, and a fat turkey cooked, which we ate. He gave us two bearskins to sleep upon, and presented me with three beaver skins. In the evening William Thomason, whose legs were swollen from the march, had a few cuts made with a knife therein, and after that had them rubbed with bear's grease. We slept in this house, ate heartily of pumpkins, bear's meat, and venison, so that we were not hungry, but were treated as well as they could possibly do. We hope that all will succeed well. They stayed at this castle three days, or until December 16th, when they resumed their journey. December 16th. After midday, a famous hunter came here, named Sycorus, who wanted very much that we should go with him to his castle. He offered to carry our goods, and to let us sleep and remain in his house as long as we liked. And because he was offering us so much, I gave him a knife and two awls as a present, and to the chief in whose house we had been, I presented a knife and a pair of scissors, and then we took our departure from this castle, 
named Onekagonka, and after going another half-mile over the ice, we saw a village with only six houses of the name Kanoa Road. But we did not enter it, because it was not worth while, and after another half-mile we passed again a village where twelve houses stood. It was named Sinatacrosi. Like the others, it was not worth while entering, and after another mile or mile and a half, we passed by great stretches of flat land and came into this castle, Medashet, about two o'clock in the evening. I did not see much beside a good many graves. This castle is named Kanagir. It is built on a hill without any palisades or any defense. We found only seven men at home, beside a party of old women and children. The chiefs of this castle, named Tanasatan and Tamwero, were hunting, so we slept in the house of Sycorus, as he had promised us, and we counted in his house one hundred pieces of saleable beaver skins that he captured with his own dogs. Van Curler continued his journey to the Sinican, Oneidas, where he arrived on December 30th, and remained with the Indians until the 12th of January, 1635, when he took his departure for Fort Orange, following the same route he had traveled in his outward journey, and arrived at Onekagonka, the first castle, at sunset, January 19th. January 20th, in the morning, before daylight, Geronima sold his coat for four beaver skins. We departed at one hour before daylight, and after marching by guess two miles, the savages pointed to a high mountain, hill, where their castle stood nine years before. They had been driven out by the Mohicans, Mohegans, and after a time they did not want to live there. On January 21st the party reached Fort Orange. This ends the journal. At this time I wish to speak of his journey of December 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, and 16th, or of that portion of the journey that brought him in the vicinity of the present city of Amsterdam. It is conceded by good authority that the stream he crossed, which was named Viog, probably Oyogi, which was the Indian name for river, was the Mohawk River, and that he crossed to the north side of the Mohawk, the kill that ran so swiftly, on December 12th, west of Schenectady. On the morning of December 13th, he recrossed to the south side, over the ice, and after going a half mile, arrived at the castle of Onekagonka, which was situated on a high hill, and whose chief's name was Adriachten. It was this name, Adriachten, that suggested the possibility of Onekagonka having been located a short distance below Amsterdam, instead of at Orysville, as suggested by some of the historians of the valley. In Pearson's Schenectady Patent, we find record of a deed of land given by the Mohawks, December 16, 1686, to Hendrik Kyler of Albany, which is described as a piece of land situate mostly on the north side of the Mohawk, Adriutha or Adriusha, above Schenectady, beginning on the north side of the river from a white oak tree that is marked with a wolf standing on the west side of a creek, Lewis, 
to a beech tree also marked with the wolf standing on the east side of a small kill or creek eva's kill and thence over the river on the south side from a great black oak tree which is also marked with a wolf together with all the small islands or banks that lie within said limits to an old oak tree marked with a bear wolf and turtle the arms of the three clans of the mohawks the property described as on the north side is the old groat place now in possession of francis morris and that on the south side is part of the settlement now called klein having in mind the similarity of the names adriochten and adriuche or adriutha i made strict inquiry among the old settlers in the vicinity of klein and found traditions of indian occupation and also found that arrowheads and hatchets had been found in the fields and woods also a well-authenticated account of indian remains together with a pipe and other articles having been unearthed in this locality between the canal and the railroad during the construction of the west shore railroad inquiring of mr oliver s klein whose ancestors have lived in that vicinity for about a century he informed me that on an elevation of land on the homestead farm about one hundred and fifty feet above the river and in a field that was covered with woods in his boyhood had been a clearing of about three or four acres and in this clearing were several holes about four feet deep and perhaps about three feet wide and six feet long these holes were undoubtedly corn pits and were used by the indians as storehouses for their grain in winter between this clearing and the edge of the hill that slopes to the flats below on the river side were to be found crystals of flint attached to much rock that appeared above the surface of the sod in many places also chips of flint in the earth near the rocks with this valuable information i visited this field of about twenty acres and found a place which with my limited knowledge of indian sites seemed to have been an ideal place for an indian stronghold the plateau which i have said had an elevation of about one hundred and fifty feet was protected in the west and south by a deep ravine whose steep banks were not very easy to ascend and the bed of a creek that at some seasons of the year and during heavy rainstorms becomes a short-lived torrent two ever-flowing springs are located in this ravine and one on the slope towards the river and an extensive flat and islands about a mile west of this point is the Cowilligan creek which runs into the mohawk river general john s clark informs me that the word canoa probably signifies place of canoes from canoa canoes and that the indians were in the habit of placing their canoes at some nearby creek for safe keeping being in possession of this information and assuming that kanoa roda one half dutch mile from onekagonka was located at kawilligan creek i proceeded to search for further information in regards to onekagonka from the fact that van curler on december twelfth speaks of traveling eleven dutch miles which would be thirty-three english miles 
I assumed that he meant that he had traveled eleven Dutch or thirty-three English miles from Fort Orange, Albany. As the average rate for this whole journey of twelve days' travel was about ten English miles, he could not in one day travel thirty-three English miles over that part of his journey that he described as being the most difficult. As the distance from Albany to Amsterdam by railroad is thirty-three miles, and to Klein about thirty miles, it seems to me that we should look for the ancient site of Onekagonka on the south side of the Mohawk River and on a hill near Klein. A journey to the State Library and an examination of the Vanderdonk map reveals the fact that Vanderdonk located Caronay, an Indian village of his time, 1656, on the bank of the Mohawk River and directly north of a small lake or pond. Vanderdonk resided at Fort Orange from 1641 to 1646. The material for this map was of about the period of 1635 and may have been the map of La Croix, La Croix, who accompanied Van Curler, General J. S. Clark. On the Amsterdam section of the topographical map of the state of New York, we find the pond at Mariaville to lie directly south of Klein, and the only lake or pond in that section of the country. Most historians concede that the Caronay of the Vanderdonk map, 1656, and Onekagonka of Van Curler's journal, 1834 and 35, are only different names for the same castle site. Previous to 1642, the village had been removed to near Schoharie Creek and became the Osserunan of Isaac Jogues, 1642, and where he suffered death in 1646. The sites of Indian villages were changed frequently, seldom remaining more than ten years in the same place, and frequently not more than six. J. S. Clark. Van Curler did not enter Canawaroda, but after going another half mile, he passed a village named Senatsacrosi without entering. And after another mile, or mile and a half, they passed by great stretches of flat land and came to a castle which he calls Wetteshet, and immediately after he says, This castle is named Kangir. In this castle are sixteen houses, fifty, sixty, seventy, or eighty paces long. December 20th we took our departure from the second castle, and after marching a mile came to a stream that we had to pass. This stream ran very fast. Besides, big flakes of ice came drifting. We were wet up to above our waists. This would seem to be a very good description of the mouth of the Schoharie Creek, and that the site of Kangir must be looked for two or three English miles east of said creek. After passing the creek they traveled about a half mile, Dutch, and came to the third castle, named Sohandis, on the top of a very high hill. This would seem to be the Scanatissa of Vanderdonk. I do not feel competent from my limited knowledge of the Indian villages, formerly located in the western part of the county of Montgomery, to follow Van Curler in his journey west of this immediate locality, 
and therefore will confine my researches to this vicinity and wait for the acceptance or rejection of these conclusions by others who are interested in indian history on the return journey of van curler and party when they had traveled by guess two miles his guide pointed to a high mountain where their castle stood nine years before or in sixteen twenty five when they were driven out by the mohegans they were undoubtedly traveling on the south side of the river where the high hills to the south could not be seen until they were in the vicinity of pattersonville where the high country called yantapuchaburg may be seen to the southeast as the range is very long and of nearly uniform height he would be imparting very indefinite information the hill at kanakwaron on the north however and the high hill to the east of it are said to be rich in indian relics the highest point of the eastern hill in particular and as it is situated about five english miles east of the supposed site of onekagonka Karanay, etc it is very probably the site of the ancient village destroyed by the mohegans general j s clark in a letter dated september fifth eighteen ninety eight says there is no doubt whatever as to the site described by you it is certainly the Karanay of the earliest maps and the onekagonka of van curler Karanay was indicated directly north of a small lake or pond and there is no other than maria pond or featherstonhaugh lake anywhere in that neighborhood a theory of van curler's journey is as follows van curler called the first castle of the mohawks onekagonka in sixteen thirty four and thirty five in sixteen forty two he again visited the first castle on a mission of mercy to rescue jogues from death he does not make mention of any change in the site which was near extensive flat lands and fertile islands the mohegans had been driven to connecticut and as the mohawks were always the aggressors when at war with the french and indians they at least had no great fear of an attack from them at the eastern end of the iroquois confederacy in addition to the above they were near and in communication with the traders at fort orange in sixteen forty two and sixteen forty three isaac jogues was a captive at the castle which he names oseruanon and again in sixteen forty six when he says he was led naked to gandawag the place of his former captivity he also says that the name of the place was changed from oseruanon to oneongur evidently showing that the names of the indian castles changed frequently and not the sites on the vanderdonk map of sixteen fifty six made from data obtained from van curler with whom he resided from sixteen forty one to sixteen forty six is an indian castle called Karanay, located directly north of a pond mariaville pond and near the mohawk river which corresponds with the recently discovered site of onekagonka at klein or adriuche if vanderdonk obtained his information of the indian sites from van curler in sixteen fifty six it is evident that the first castle was then located at klein and was known by the following names at the periods mentioned onekagonka sixteen thirty four thirty five van curler onekagonk sixteen forty two van curler 
a Saranon, 1642, Jogues, Oniagour, 1646, Jogues, Carinet, 1656, Vanderdonk, Adriouche, 1686, Hendrik Kyler, Klein, 1898, W.M.R. In 1666, two expeditions of French and Indians visited the Mohawk country, in February and in September. In September 1666, they destroyed all three of the Mohawk castles, together with their stores of provisions. It was probably at this time that the Mohawks moved to the flats at Fort Hunter and Auriesville and beyond, as they had good reasons for changing their location. Vanderdonk says, The Indian villages changed their location quite frequently, but their castles of fortified places were occupied a long time, or until they were destroyed by fire or by an enemy. But it is quite evident from the foregoing list that the names of the castles were frequently changed, and from this circumstance a confusion of location of sites has probably arisen. Parkman, in speaking of Labatee's account of the murder of Isaac Jogues, says, He, Labati, was the interpreter at Fort Orange, and being near the scene of the murder, took pains to learn the facts. This would indicate that Osirinon in 1646 was not far from Fort Orange. It is generally conceded that the words Gandawaga, Kahaniaga, and Kanyeage are the same, and that their definition is not at the rapids, but the people of the flint. Why of the flint? I am aware that the above theory does not conform to preconceived ideas of Indian sites that have always, more or less, been mere conjecture, built around some vague statements that in some cases admit of different interpretation, but it is the theory of a student in Indian history, after a careful research of available material, and without being hampered by the haze of preconceived theories. The Indian history of the Mohawk Valley is very interesting, but the section between Fort Hunter and Hoffman's has received scant consideration from local historians, whose attention has been directed to their immediate locality, and theories built up from the later occupation of the valley, which did not extend below Fort Hunter to any great extent. It will be noticed that Van Curler gives two names to the second castle, located one dutch mile east of a large stream where the flakes of ice drifted fast schoharie creek wet dashet and canagir going to confirm the fact that the names of the castles were frequently changed in locating castle sites one thing should be taken into consideration and that is that the mohawks were in a measure an agricultural people as they raised corn bean pumpkins and tobacco in such quantities that they stored it for winter use. The fertile flats of the Mohawk are not evenly distributed along the river. The bottomlands are quite wide, all the way from Schenectady on both sides of the river, particularly so on the south side. At Adriouche, or Cranesville, are fertile flats and large islands, and again at Fort Hunter, Auriesville, Fonda, and so on. The river from Cranesville to Schenectady was the home of a large body of Mohawks, 
owing to the fertile flats situated along the river bottom and from the fact that navigation practically ended there and the carry over the trail to albany began probably the reader is aware that the french and indians always spoke of being in the mohawk country when they arrived at the upper or southern end of lake champlain and lake george saratoga lake and vicinity were frequently visited by mohawk hunting and fishing parties and all indian trails from the north of early date seemed to lead to points between hoffman's and albany taking all these things into consideration i am inclined to think that prehistoric sites of indian castles should be sought for between sancy or zandiga creek and the schoharie river van curler's journal seems to indicate that one dutch mile east from schoharie river the second castle of the mohawks was situated some very interesting prehistoric remains and embankments and evidence of indian occupation have been found on the flats and hills at the wemple place near fort hunter one of the earliest and most tragic events that is recorded of the advent of the jesuit priests in the mohawk valley occurred in this locality the massacre of jogues and goupil in all the early expeditions of france and spain to the coast of america the priest seems to have been a very necessary part of the equipment some of them were from the order of the franciscans or recollets and later from the society of jesus or jesuits as the disciples of saint ignatius loyola are called they were found with cortez in mexico ponce de leon menendez navarez and the frenchman jean ribot in florida and hernando de soto on the mississippi also with jacques cartier when he discovered the river st lawrence in fifteen thirty five at which time he visited the indian villages staticone afterward the site of quebec and hochelaga named by cartier mount royal from the mountain in the rear of the indian village and now known as montreal at an early period in the history of montreal it was also called ville marie they came again with champlain in sixteen o three also in sixteen o nine but among the first of the long lines of french jesuits who made the conversion of the indians their life work were fathers baird and mas in sixteen ten who were joined in sixteen thirteen by father quentin and brother duthay and in sixteen twenty five by charles lalemant and jean de brebeuf in this age we look with wonder upon the records of the jesuits of that period and marvel at the zeal and self-sacrificing spirit of those pioneers of the roman catholic church in america parkman in speaking of the jesuits of canada says no religious order has ever united in itself so much to be admired and so much to be detested a fervor more intense a self-abnegation more complete a self-devotion more constant and enduring will scarcely find its record on the pages of human history in all the copious records of this period not a line gives occasion to suspect that one of the loyal band flinched or hesitated the fate of jean de brebeuf will illustrate the perils with which they were beset the ferocity of the mohawk warriors and their hatred of the french and the black-robed jesuits 
with your permission i will quote from parkman's jesuits in north america to illustrate the fate of many of these devoted priests brebeuf and lalemant were captured by the mohawks at the final destruction of the huron nation on the shores of lake huron in 1649 parkman says on the 16th of march 1649 the day when the two priests were captured brebeuf was led apart and bound to a stake he seemed more concerned for his captive converts than for himself and addressed them in a loud voice exhorting them to suffer patiently and promising heaven as their reward the iroquois incensed scorched him from head to foot to silence him whereupon in the tone of a master he threatened them with everlasting flames for persecuting the worshippers of god as he continued to speak with voice and countenance unchanged they cut away his lower lip and thrust a red-hot iron down his throat he still held his tall muscular form erect and defiant with no sign or sound of pain and they tried another means to overcome him they led out lalemant that brebeuf might see him tortured they had tied strips of bark smeared with pitch about his naked limbs when he saw the condition of brebeuf he could not hide his agitation and threw himself at the feet of his superior upon which the iroquois seized him made him fast to a stake and set fire to the bark that enveloped him as the flame rose he threw his arms upward with a shriek of supplication to heaven next they hung around brebeuf's neck a collar made of hatchets heated red hot but the indomitable priest stood like a rock a kettle was slung and the water boiled and poured slowly on the heads of the two missionaries we baptize you they cried that you may be happy in heaven for nobody can be saved without a good baptism brebeuf would not flinch and in rage they cut strips of flesh from his limbs and devoured them before his eyes others called out to him you told us that the more one suffers on earth the happier he is in heaven after a succession of other revolting tortures they scalped him when seeing him nearly dead they laid open his breast and came in a crowd to drink the blood of so valiant an enemy thinking to imbibe with it some portion of his courage a chief then tore out his heart and devoured it thus died jean de brebeuf the founder of the huron mission its truest hero and its greatest martyr it is said that he was a noble specimen of manhood being of great size and strength and with noble features better fitted to be a knight than a priest as brebeuf was a martyr of the huron mission so isaac jogues may be called the martyr of the mission of the mohawks on the bank of the mohawk at the little hamlet of auriesville the society of which he was a member has erected a shrine as a tribute to the memory of that noble self-sacrificing priest in this age we may smile at his belief and some of his methods but we cannot help admiring him for his strict obedience to the dictates of his conscience and his humility and heroism in the discharge of his duties it is said that he was born at orleans 
of a worthy family january tenth sixteen o seven and at an early age entered the college of the jesuits at his native place and at the time he was an ordained priest in sixteen thirty six he was an exceedingly well-educated man he accompanied a fleet that sailed for canada in april sixteen thirty six arrived at quebec in july of the same year and was almost immediately assigned to one of the missions in the country of the hurons being one of the companions of father brebeuf spoken of above for five years he labored among those savages suffering all manner of hardships and privations among the hurons tobacco indians ottawas and chippewas ojibwas of northern canada returning to the huron country from quebec in sixteen forty two he was captured by a war party of agniers the agniers or mohawks were located near the dutch post of rensselaerwick the albany of the present time they were noted for their deadly hatred of the french and the apostles of the catholic faith and were continually at war with the hurons and algonquins of canada in parties of from ten to a hundred they would leave their villages on the mohawk and descend lake champlain and the river richelieu to lay an ambush on the banks of the st lawrence and attack passing boats follow the trails of travelers or hunters or break upon unguarded camps at midnight and often in large parties attack the palisaded villages of their enemies the account of the capture of father jogues rene goupil and couture is taken from the relations of the jesuits in the early morning of the second of august sixteen forty two twelve huron canoes were moving slowly along the northern shore of the expansion of the st lawrence known as lake st peter west of three rivers there were on board about forty persons including four frenchmen jogues sat in one of the leading canoes his oval face and the delicate mold of features indicated a modest thoughtful refined nature he was constitutionally timid with a sensitive conscience and great religious susceptibilities he was a finished scholar and might have gained a literary reputation but he had chosen another career and one for which he seemed but little fitted physically however he was well matched with his work for though his frame was light he was so active that none of the indians could surpass him in running in stature he was the opposite to the majestic brebeuf with him were two young men rene goupil and guillaume couture dons of the mission that is to say laymen who without pay had attached themselves to the services of the jesuits goupil was formerly a jesuit novitiate at paris but while in quebec had been an attendant at the hospital his surgical skill was of great help to jogues in case of sickness among the savages couture was also a man of intelligence and vigor the twelve canoes had reached the western end of lake st peter when from the forests on the bank was heard the dreaded war cry of the mohawks mingled with the reports of guns and the whistling of bullets and several iroquois canoes filled with warriors bore down upon jogues and his companions the hurons were seized with a shameful panic and leaving canoes baggage and weapons 
fled into the woods, but not soon enough to prevent many from being either killed or captured. Jogues and Couture sprang into the bulrushes and could have escaped, but seeing Goupil in the clutches of the Mohawks, they came out of their hiding place and gave themselves up to their astonished victors rather than desert a friend. As Couture advanced, five Iroquois sprang forward to meet him, and one of them snapped his gun at his breast, but missed fire. In his confusion and excitement, Couture fired his own piece and laid the savage, who was a chief, dead. The remaining four sprang upon him, tore off his clothing, beat him with clubs and with their fists, and finally tore out his fingernails with their teeth, gnawing his fingers with the fury of famished dogs, and thrust a sword through the offending hand that had fired the shot. Jogues broke away from his guards and rushed to the assistance of his friend. He was dragged away and beaten with war clubs until he was senseless. Goupil was also subjected to the same treatment, and his hands and those of Jogues were badly lacerated by the teeth of the savages. The Iroquois started at last, ascending the Richelieu, and entered Lake Champlain. On the eighth day they ascertained that about two hundred Iroquois, Mohawks, were encamped on an island in the lake, about one day's distance away. Reaching the island, the captives were forced to run the gauntlet and were tortured in various ways. Jogues, the last of the line, fell drenched in blood and half dead, but was forced to resume the journey the next morning, and on the 10th of August reached Lake George, four days' march from the first Mohawk castle. The hardships of this march were rendered even more intense by the want of food. The 11th of August they crossed the upper Hudson, which they called Oyogue, the river, and on August 15th reached the end of their journey. In a letter to the provincial of the Jesuits at Paris, Jogues says, On the eve of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin, about three o'clock, we reached the bank of the second river, Mohawk, about three-quarters of a mile from their village called Asiruinan. Both banks were filled with Iroquois, who received us with clubs, fists, and stones. When satisfied with their cruelty, which we thus received by the riverside, they crossed the river and led us to their village on the top of the hill. At its entrance we met the youth of all that district, awaiting us in line on each side of the road, all armed with clubs and through this double row of savages the captives were led single file, Couture in front. Because he had killed a chief, after him some Huron captives, then Goupil, then the remaining Hurons, and at last Jogues. Some of the prisoners were killed, but the three Frenchmen managed to drag themselves through that line of torture and were all placed on a high platform in the middle of the village. They were kept on this platform for three days, and were then led in triumph to the second castle, and afterward the third, suffering at each a repetition of the former cruelties. Jogues and Goupil were afterward led back to the first castle, where they expected to be burned at the stake. Couture, according to custom, 
had been adopted into one of the families and taken to the farthest town named Tionontagune. About this time the Dutch of Rensselaerwick, which was not forty miles from this town, having heard of the capture and torture of several Frenchmen, desired to interpose and obtain their deliverance. On September 17th, Arendt van Corlier, commander of the fort, Jean Labatie, his interpreter, and Jacob Jansen of Amsterdam, went as ambassadors to the town of Andagaron, the second castle, and although they made flattering offers and a promise of two hundred dollars, they were unable to obtain the release of the prisoners. One day, after they had been in the hands of the Mohawks about six weeks, Goupil attempted to make the sign of the cross on some children, but was warned that if he did anything of the kind he would be killed. Shortly after, Goupil, in placing his cap on the head of a child, attempted to make the sign of the cross on its forehead. The grandfather of the child detected him, and as Goupil left the cabin, said to one of his nephews, a young buck just ready for the warpath, go kill that dog of a frenchman the hollanders tell us the sign he has made is not good the young brave was only too glad of the order and watched to catch goupil outside of the palisade when he would be at liberty to kill him shortly after as the two captives were returning from the forest saying their rosary they met two mohawks near the gate one of them raised a tomahawk and struck it into the head of Goupil, who fell on his face. Jogues fell on his knees, and uncovering his head, awaited the same fate, but the Indians told him he had nothing to fear, for he belonged to another family. The body of René Goupil was dragged through the village by the children to a ravine at considerable distance, where they flung it in. The next day, Jogues instituted a search for the body in the ravine, at the bottom of which ran a torrent. Here Jogues, with the help of an old Indian, his master, found it stripped naked and gnawed by dogs. He dragged it into the water and covered it with stones to hide it and save it from further mutilation, intending to return the following day and bury it. He was not able to return until two days after when he found the stream a rolling, turbulent flood from a recent storm, and the body nowhere to be seen. I quote his words from the relations in a letter to the provincial. I returned to the spot, I ascended the mount at the foot of which the torrent ran. I descended again and searched the woods on the opposite bank. My search was useless. In spite of the water which came up to my waist, for it had rained all night, and in spite of the cold, as it was the first of October, I sounded with my feet and with my staff to see if the current had not carried the corpse further along. The Indians, who are liars by nature, told me it had been carried down by the current to their river nearby, which was untrue. They also told him that they had dragged it to the river three-quarters of a mile away, which I did not know because no such river existed. They lied to him. It was some young Indians and not the torrent that had borne the body away. In the spring, when the snows were melting in the woods, he was told by some Mohawk children 
that the body was in the ravine in a lonely spot lower down the stream there he found the scattered bones and hid them in the earth hoping that a time would come when he could give them christian burial jogues remained with the mohawks at ossi ruinan until july sixteen forty three when he went to a fishing place on the hudson about twenty miles below fort orange having learned of prisoners having been burned to death at ossi ruinan during his absence his conscience smote him because he had not been on hand to baptize them and he urged the indians to allow him to return reaching rensselaerwick he was advised by megapolnesis the dutch clergyman at that post and others not to return to the mohawk castle as he would surely be killed taking their advice and with their help he secretly went aboard a vessel bound for manhattan new york and from there was assisted to a passage on a ship bound for france in sixteen forty four he returned to canada in sixteen forty five a treaty of peace was confirmed between the iroquois and the french and algonquins after some reverses to the iroquois on lake champlain which treaty was broken by the western tribes the mohawks were becoming uneasy and it was felt by the governor general chevalier de montigny that it would be policy to send an envoy of higher rank than couture the former ambassador to win over the turbulent mohawks jogues was chosen for the task also to found a new mission which was named the mission of the martyrs jogues for the past two years had been at montreal and as soon as he received his orders started for three rivers which he left on may sixteenth with mr bourdon and four mohawk deputies and two algonquins as guides their route to the mohawk country was up the st lawrence to the river richelieu and lake champlain and lake george it was on this journey that having reached lake george on the eve of corpus christi he named it lac st sacrament which name it preserved until seventeen fifty seven when sir william johnson christened it lake george in honor of king george the second from lake george being short of food they crossed over to fish creek where the indians catch a small fish like herring jogues borrowing canoes june fourth of the iroquois they descended the hudson to fort orange after two days rest they continued their journey and reached the first mohawk town on the evening of june seventh about one day's travel he says we reached the first castle on the evening of june seventh its name has been changed from aseruanon to onayugari crowds came from the neighboring indian villages to gaze at the abused slave who now came among them as an ambassador of power a semblance of peace was patched up but the old hatred of the french still burned sullenly making the prospect of the future very ominous hardly had the business of the embassy been finished before the mohawks probably the wolves urged them to depart for fear some of the western tribes who were already preparing for a predatory raid to the st lawrence would lie in ambush and kill their algonquin guides if not the frenchmen themselves upon his departure 
jogues left a small chest containing his scanty outfit and a few religious articles expecting to return soon to the valley and establish the mission of the martyrs among the savage mohawks on the twenty fourth of august he again set out for his dangerous post among the iroquois mohawks his only companions were a young frenchman named lalande and three or four hurons on the way they met some indians who warned them not to continue their journey as a change of feeling had taken place in the mohawk towns and they would surely be killed if they persisted in going there the hurons becoming alarmed refused to go any farther but jogues and his young companion lalande would not turn back the reported change had taken place owing to the superstitious ignorance of the indians the small box left by jogues seemed mysterious to them and they imagined it to contain some secret charm at this time a contagious disease was raging among them and many of the mohawks were dying besides the caterpillars had destroyed nearly the whole harvest and this they ascribed to the little box and the sorceries of the jesuits the trunk was thrown into the river unopened and they were ready to wreak vengeance on the supposed author of all their woes a war party on the march to fort richelieu came upon father jogues and lalande two days march from their village and in fury fell upon them stripped them of their clothes beat them and in triumph led them to the first castle jogues says i was led naked to gandawag the place of my former captivity this place was various called by jogues oseriunan oneyujere and gandawag here they cut thin strips of flesh from the back and arms of jogues the crowd shouting you shall die tomorrow of the three great clans of the mohawks the bear the tortoise and the wolf the bear chiefs were clamorous for his death but the wolves especially were more friendly to the captive however the bears prevailed francis parkman describes his death as follows in the evening it was the eighteenth of october jogues smarting from his wounds and bruises was sitting in one of the lodges when an indian entered and asked him to a feast to refuse would have been an offense he arose and followed the savage who led him to the lodge of a bear chief jogues bent his head to enter when another indian standing concealed within at the side of the doorway struck at him with a hatchet an iroquois called by the french le berger who seems to have followed in order to defend him bravely held out his arm to ward off the blow but the hatchet cut through it and sank into the missionary's brain he fell at the feet of his murderer who finished his work by hacking off his head lalande was left in suspense all night and in the morning was killed in a similar manner the bodies of the two frenchmen were then thrown into the mohawk and their heads displayed on the points of the palisade which enclosed the town thus died isaac jogues one of the purest examples of roman catholic virtue which this western continent has seen le berger who tried to save the priest's life 
had at one time been taken prisoner and kindly treated by the French. He showed his gratitude by his unsuccessful attempts to defend the life of the French Jesuit. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline